Before I became a podcaster, before I even started listening to podcasts, there was just one radio station that I was constantly tuned into. That station was NPR. And the first podcasts that I started to listen to were all NPR podcasts. From there, the love grew. <laughs> My addiction to podcasts, for sure, started to expand and go into different topics. And now here we are, seven years later, a million and a half downloads, and an incredible community that I have the pleasure to serve at Better Leaders, Better Schools. So to say today's podcast is a milestone in my career is an understatement. And I'm super excited to share the mic with Max Friedman and Mark Winston Griffith, who co-create the podcast School Colors on NPR's Code Switch. You're going to love today's conversation because we talk about the power of storytelling, how to be a curious leader and listener. We're going to talk about all things education and leadership with a lens of equity and inequity that inherently exists in our system and maybe what we can do about it. Hey, it's Danny, and welcome to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, a show for ruckus makers, those out-of-the-box leaders making change happen in education. And we'll be right back after a few messages from our show sponsors. Develop your structures, systems, supports, and culture for excellent teaching and learning in every classroom for every student as a part of Leading Learning, a brand new Certificate of School Management and Leadership course from Harvard. Leading Learning runs from July 20th to August 17th, 2022. Apply by July 8th, enroll by July 14th, and get started at betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Harvard. Better Leaders, Better Schools is brought to you by school leaders like Principal Gutierrez using TeachFX. Special populations benefit the most from verbally engaging in class, but get far fewer opportunities to do so than their peers, especially in virtual classes. TeachFX measures verbal engagement automatically in virtual or in-person classes to help schools and teachers address these issues of equity during covid Learn more and get a special offer from Better Leaders, Better Schools listeners at teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. That's teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. All students have an opportunity to succeed with Organized Binder, who equips educators with a resource to provide stable and consistent learning, whether that's in a distance, hybrid, or traditional educational setting. Learn more at organizedbinder.com. Ruckus Maker. Today, I am joined by Max Friedman and Mark Winston Griffith, who create the podcast School Colors on NPR's Code Switch. Welcome to the show, Max and Mark. Great to be here. Awesome. Well, Mark, I'd love to start with you. And I, I'm curious, how did, you, how did you meet Max? And where did the idea for the School Colors podcast come from? Uh, Max and I met when I was the executive director of the Brooklyn Movement Center, and Max was a 
resident of Bed-Stuy and, and a student. And he joined the Brooklyn Movement Center. Um, and he rolled up on me uh, one day to talk about something that he was working on as a, as a graduate student, a, a project that he was working on, some research that he was doing. And uh, he had, he knew that I was doing, had been doing some parent organizing that I was from central Brooklyn and would have some sense of the dynamics and history um, within central Brooklyn schools and asked me, you know, if we could, we could chat. And I just kind of sort of spilled my guts because not, not all that many people seem to be interested <laughs> in, in a lot of this stuff. And I was just really excited to, to share it. But what I was really struck by is how much he already knew, <laughs> not just his curiosity, but how much work he had done on his own. And so Whereas in most instances, I just would have done a brain dump. What, what actually happened is that we had a real conversation. Um, while I felt like I had a lot to share, he also had things to share. And he was able to ask me just really smart questions. And we were able to have a generative conversation about education in central Brooklyn, about parent dynamics, about school performance and, and related matters. You know, we, my organization had actually done a study of community school district 16, which is what he was, what, what, what he was looking at. So mm-hmm. um, not only, I mean, I lived in the area, but did not actually send my children to, to school in district 16 in, in, in which is takes the most of, or at least half of, of Bedford Stuyvesant, but I had studied it through this report and so at the moment we, we had this conversation, I had a pretty fresh take on um, the dynamics in District 16 in particular and about race. And because my organization also was doing social justice work that included, I guess, what you would call anti-displacement and anti-gentrification work, I had a very keen sense of how race and gentrification was impacting the conversation about education in District 16. Right, right. So um, that's where the first, I think that's where we first sort of uh, began to share notes. And the, I mean, the the work that Max did, um, the project that he worked on, in some ways became sort of the the frame, uh, the bones for the, for what ultimately became the podcast. I mean, I think we eventually kind of came to it on our own terms. Uh, and with, through my organ- own organization, we had not only done that study, but we're continuing to do storytelling uh, about Central Brooklyn. We had our own podcast, uh, our own uh, talk show for the, uh, f- formatted podcast. Uh, and I was a journalist as well and had a deep interest in telling stories about change in central Brooklyn. And so I think all those things came together and we really felt like we had an important story to tell. And it just evolved into what eventually became School Colors. Cool. And hey, we're going to we're going to dig into a little bit later in the show, Mark, this idea of storytelling and why that's important to change making. But I want to ask you one more follow-up question before heading over to Max. And 
you said you had a real conversation. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to tell you, you know, have you tell me a, a little bit more about that. And the reason why is, you know, the ruckus maker listings a school leader. And I think the, the more consistent they can be about having real conversations with their people, that's going to be great for their organization, their culture, and ultimately then uh, their students. And so what, what's a real conversation to you? Well, a real conversation, is, I think, starts when both people in the conversation have done some level of work, mm-hmm. right? That they're, they're not just coming in wide-eyed in a sense of, okay, tell me this, tell me that, or um, don't come in necessarily with just a bunch of um, half-baked assumptions, but you come in with a sense of not uh, of lived experience, but also having studied and explored and analyzed a, a particular issue so that you're well-informed about it. Mm-hmm. So when Max and I spoke, um, yeah, he was asking me questions, but when I, when I responded, he was able to follow up with other questions that were based on some deep research he had already done and some, some thinking that he had already done. And so it was, you know, we were able to relate to one another on a peer level and his, his curiosity spurred my curiosity. And we just had a lively conversation based on being both being pretty deeply informed about something. And when you're both, informed and you both have an interest and excitement around an issue, again, it just starts to, the conversation just starts to build on itself. And that's what I found with, with Max. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. So Mm -hmm. Max, yeah, I'd love to ask you about curiosity. Mark's highlighted that as a strength of yours a few times now. And I think that helps school leaders be effective as well. So where does your curiosity come from, Max? Oh gosh. Um, I don't know, probably from my parents. Uh, honestly, you know, my dad, um, my dad has too many books. Like my mom is always like, stop (laughs) getting you, stop getting him books for, for birthdays and father's (laughs) day. Cause he just like, I mean, he reads a lot of them, but really he just like, you know, all all kinds of subjects. And so I think that's, Mm. and my mom is curious too. I don't want to say only my dad is curious, but certainly I think that comes from my parents. But, um, in terms of the kind of curiosity that led me to school colors specifically, you know, I just, I, I feel, and I feel like a product of a very specific historical moment. I feel like a lot of the work that I do and the way that I approach it is simply a function of moving to Bed-Stuy, moving to Brooklyn in 2011. Um, like moving to Brooklyn in 2011 and seeing the changes that were happening around me and going, that's, that's weird. Like, you know, there's like these two, it was actually, I moved before I moved to Bed-Stuy, I moved to Bushwick, which is a different neighborhood in Brooklyn. In some ways it was even more stark in, in Bushwick. Just the idea that there were like essentially two communities in this neighborhood that were not like necessarily geographically, like they were, you know, kind of sprinkled throughout each other um, in some ways, essentially like people in their early twenties, like me um, who were artists or want to be artists or, you know, working and doing, you know, um, not necessarily with a lot of money per se, but, um, and then like, you know, it's Latinx families uh, who had been living in this neighborhood for a long time. And these communities occupied the same space, but did not, seem to really talk to each other at all or, or have any relationship with, with each other. And it was just odd to me. Um, and I noticed it and I was like, that's, what is that about? And it's sort of like, what is that about? The line that I, I, I always think about is the Bob Dylan line, um, something is happening here, but you don't know what it is. That's just, is like my, that's, that's my whole, that's sort of my MO. Something is happening here and you don't know what it is. 
that's just, I got a real powerful feeling of that when I was 23, having just moved to New York. Um, sort of everything else went from there. Got it. I don't know if this is a great place to uh, insert this idea of Paulo Freire's code, but you, you mentioned that in, in our pre-chat and how it could be interesting to, to sort of talk about something like, well, I'll let you explain it. So I'd love to invite you to discuss Paulo Freire's code and how that applies to the making of the School of Colors podcast. Sure. Uh, so fairy scholars may say that I'm not getting this exactly right, but as I remember it in Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, um, he talks about creating a code. And, and what he means by the word code is that you get, I mean, I'll just use the example of what we're doing. We're sort of the facilitators or the intermediaries in this experience where we've done a lot of work and we've talked to a lot of different people and we are synthesizing all of that into this podcast. And then the podcast is, a, is this external thing, which Ferry would call a code, which then people, the people that we talk to and other people in that situation can talk to each other about the thing that we made. And sometimes it's just easier to talk to each other across difference about the thing than it is about like the life you're living or the situation that you're in. That's, that's the idea of a code. Uh, is just a, a sort of external object that maybe it'll be easier for people to come together and dialogue about. And that certainly was the impulse. When we started all this in bed it really felt like you had these uh, totally, they had these communities sharing the space that didn't have much of a relationship. And, and, and actually, I shouldn't say just two communities because it depends what issue we're talking about, whether it's gentrification or charter schools. The charter sure. school debate is largely happening within the Black community in central Brooklyn. But However you want to characterize it, people not necessarily able to come to a productive dialogue, however you want to define that, about the issues that are affecting them all. Um, and, and our naive hope was that we could make a thing that people could talk to each other about. Um, and honestly, I wish I could tell you that I knew whether or not that was happening. You know, we don't we've 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 had just about enough resources and actually not really enough resources to make the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish we had the wherewithal to to go out and, and really talk to people about how they have used the show, um, how they've used the first season over the last two and a half years. And and actually, we, we're doing a call out for the second season. Uh, we just in this morning's episode are asking people to call a number if they have been listening to the show and leave us messages about what it's meant to them and whether they have been thinking about things differently in their own lives as, as a result of listening to it. But that's, that's the idea. Great. Yeah. And so, you know, I'd, I'd encourage uh, the ruckus maker listening to, to, to sort of take that concept. And I wonder, you know, I don't have the answer for you, but what's the thing that you might create so you can talk about what you need to really talk about, but you're talking about this thing as Max was saying, uh, and maybe it's the school colors podcast, which I highly recommend that you uh, check out and subscribe to uh, for sure. So Max, do you, do you know that number? Uh, if you do, feel free to, to share it here. Uh, I'm sure there's some listeners that are listening to the podcast and would love to call in as well. Oh, give me one second. I can get it for you very quickly, but it's not right in front of me. Uh, it is 929-483-6387. Awesome. Thank you, Max. Mark, I'd, I'd love to come back to you. I, I promised I, I wanted to ask you about uh, storytelling as a, a vehicle for making change happen. And in your experience, how have you found this to be true? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And I feel like it's the answer to that is something that I'm trying to evolve with, mm-hmm. I guess you could say. Okay. Uh, 
you know, I think the two threads for me that have come together in this project have been the fact that I've been an organizer, an activist, and uh, I guess what people would consider to be an advocate and a, and a ruckus maker, if, if you will. Yes. <laughs> or um, really since I've been in probably in high school um, or at least in, in, in college. And so it's a big part of my identity and it's a big part of how I feel change needs to be activated and, and made. But at the same time, I've been a journal- journalist. You know, like Max, I have a deep curiosity about things that go on around me mm-hmm. and often feel like organizing and activism is limited in terms of the extent to which we can not only get to change, but, only, but also speak to what's really happening. Um, and I'll, what I mean by that is if you study organizing, you know that the role of a good organizer is really to polarize an issue, to get people to see it in very stark terms, to get people over to your side so that they can work on that change. And I've always felt a little bit frustrated by that because I've always seen the subtlety in in things and the nuance and have not always seen things in terms of being an organizer, but just as being a human or being a father or, you know, being a a neighbor or being a, a family member. So being a storyteller for me is sort of helping to, to come at a, an issue in a particular way where you get to see all dimensions of it and you get to see the humanity in it and you get a better understanding of it because you're bringing other people's humanity into the, the equation. It's not just an academic exercise. It's not, you're not just intellectualizing something and uh, bringing that intellectual understanding of an issue to, to the fore, but you have a you you contextualize it and you have a, a deeper understanding of it because of the way other people are interacting and intersecting with that idea. And being a good storyteller is really difficult. I mean, it, it's easy to just start talking <laughs> or to express a story in some way, but it's really difficult to tell a story in such a way where people understand the narrative, where you're building empathy. Um, and you bring people along on a journey so that they feel transformed by what you've, by the story that you've told. And so that's what I've always, that's what I've str- strive to do as a journalist um, and a storyteller is to, to meet people where they are, um, not just as organizers and activists, but just as ordinary people and get folks to see an issue or to see their lives or see reality in a different way based on the way we are getting them to see other humans, the the way they have struggled through a particular issue and to understand the history, the broader history and the broader context uh, and the other ways in which other issues intersect with an issue that you may see in a very narrow way. It's really to just kind of broaden the aperture for people. And to communicate with them in ways that they're not always used to being communicated with. Got it. And Mark, you know, I'd assert that like storytelling is a skill, you know, like a muscle is something that, you know, if you practice breaking it down, building it up, 
over time, you'll get better and better. I don't know if you'd agree with that or not, but is there is is there a resource or somewhere you might point a ruckus maker listening toward uh, in terms of developing their their story skills, so to speak? Max, do you have any ideas on this? Well, it's hard, it's hard for me to answer that question because again, I'll I'll credit my parents. My parents are storytellers. Um, okay. I mean, professionally. So, like, that's um, that's just always been in my in my life and and in my work. Um, in fact, when I when I went to grad school for urban design, which Mark talked about, that that being kind of how we met, I was really I went into that. I had been a theater major in college. Um, and I went into school for urban design being like, I don't know, I've never done any kind of design. I don't know how to draft anything or make a chair or, or anything. Um, and I felt really, um, I felt really insecure about that when I, when I was in that program. And then one thing that I realized over the course of those two years is that storytelling is a huge part, especially if you, you know, if you're doing design work or, or advocacy or, you know, if you, you, you want to make make change happen in, in any way, if you, even if you just want to design a better chair, like you need to communicate that to people. And, and actually most, my program did not teach communication, didn't teach storytelling. Hmm. And it seemed like a, it seemed like a big oversight. And I found that I was actually in some ways really well prepared or even better prepared than some of my, my classmates who I love um, to, to communicate the, the, my ideas and, and, in a way that would, what that would reach people. Um, is that, that's not really answering your question, which is like, how do I, what, what storytelling, like what skills or, or tools can I direct people towards, uh, for improving their storytelling? Um, I guess I will just say, like, think about the ways in which you're already a storyteller. Um, mm-hmm. I think most of us in some way or another are already storytellers. And, you know, I just wonder if you can, if you can apply that to, to your work in a way that you haven't imagined yet. Yeah. And, so, and, I, and I, I would also add that it's start starting with the stories that you already know and love, right? I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a movie head and a critic and I've spent so much of my life, not just, not just consuming stories, but really being impressed with them or being frustrated by ones that are told badly. And so I think you start with what, what you have experienced that has touched you the most stories that you feel have been told well and sort of get into how they were able to tell that story. What, what did they do? What were the mechanics? What were the, what were the devices they used that really impacted you? Um, You know, my, my kids and, my kids have grown up very differently than I have. I've grown up on movies. They've grown up on videos and TikTok as much of a cliche that may, that might be, you know, and I've always tried to impose my, my movies on, on them and have dragged my kids through the Godfather and, <laughs> and dozens of other, uh, other movies. And my son made a video for his class a few weeks ago. And I was just blown away by the by the effectiveness of his video storytelling mm. and i think that he was able to do it because of what he has consumed what he has seen as being effective and then uh you know just funneling it through what he knows how to do himself so that i mean I, that that's the best i could advise advice i can give i mean obviously there there are classes you can take and other kinds of tools you can pick up but I think it's really starting with your own experience and what you have seen as good storytelling. That must have been a proud father moment for you. 
Yeah, I mean, it just took me by surprise. You know, I just, I mean, not that I didn't think he was capable. I just didn't think he was interested in it. And, um, and yeah, I mean, the, the video is all of what, three or four minutes long. There's virtually, no, there's no talking in it until the very end. And he just communicates a, a, an idea in a very effective way, in a very efficient way. And I was like, oh, how did he learn how to do this? <laughs> so, you know, um, uh, and and I don't think and and he was taking a class when he did it and I asked him and and he told me he didn't learn very much in the class, you know. So what he what he was able to convey he picked up elsewhere outside of an academic setting outside of like the conventional tools that one would get to to learn how to do that kind of work. Well, Max, let's talk about Pat Mitchell. You know, she's and pull on this thread of preparedness too. You kind of brought that up. I love, I love Pat Mitchell. <laughs> I, I would love to talk about Pat Mitchell. All right, great. And, and you were talking, yeah, about preparedness when we were talking about storytelling. So I, I think there's this idea where she's, it, from my understanding, she's thrust into school leadership, right? Not, not looking for it, not feeling ready. She literally says, "I'm not ready for this," and yet the district gives her a school anyways. From what I can gather, she's highly effective, right? After years of experience. Uh, but I, I think it was, was it her story too? For two years, she had no visit from a, a superintendent, no one giving her feedback. And if, the, if yeah. that was Pat's story, you know, getting to know yeah. her, what, what, did that, what did that show you or teach you about principal development and preparedness from her experience? Yeah. Being a principal is such a hard job. Um, I mean, <laughs> as she says later in the episode, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish this job on anybody I like, right. um, <laughs> which is, which is honest, mm-hmm. right? She's been in that, she's been in that job for 15 years. She's been in the system for, for twice that long. You know, it's, it's a really, really hard job. It's a really hard job, particularly in a place like South Jamaica, which is the area that we're talking about in that episode, you know, and, and, and it's interesting as we, as we report this show, a lot of educators don't necessarily like being a principal is so hard. Being a teacher is so hard. A lot of educators don't necessarily think about necess- the, the, the systems and structures and, and politics that govern the way that schools uh, function. I mean, I, I get it. I've been a, I've been a teacher. You're focused on the kids in front of you and the lesson plans for today. And, you know, get getting the work done, the work in the classroom. I totally understand. Um, but I think Pat's story actually reveals a, a many ways in which you can't really ever escape the polity, the politics and policies and structures. You know, so, so for example, the fact that she never saw a super, first of all, the fact that she got that job without having any experiences, that only really was able to happen um, because the way that the New York City school system had was, is governed had just been changed. So they, um, like they, she would have had to go through a whole uh, process with a school board and, you know, uh, apply and, and be reviewed by the parents and all of this stuff, except that they had just done away with all of that a couple of years before that. And I'm not saying I'm, I'm obviously I'm glad she got that job. She's amazing. Um, but that's, you know, the reason. And it probably even then would probably not have happened in the northern part of this district in Forest Hills. That she, that's what she said, mm-hmm. like a school in Forest Hills, the parents in that school simply probably would not have allowed somebody with so little leadership experience or principal experience to get that job. And yet that's what was, that's what happened at a school in South Jamaica. And then the fact that the superintendent never visited her school for two years. Well, during this period, the superintendent as a position throughout New York city was disempowered. So the superintendent um, was 
uh, probably stretched too thin. Um, I don't, I don't know who it was at the time exactly, but it was probably stretched too thin, uh, and didn't really have any, didn't really have any power. And, and frequently, frankly, a lot of the people, some of, I don't know, some of the people who were given those jobs at that time, because the positions didn't have much power were essentially bureaucrats who, I don't know if they, that person, again, I don't know who it was. I don't know if that person even could have given Pat the mentorship she she would have liked or, or that she needed. And so I think those are just some examples of how the schools are conditioned by all these external forces. Um, and you have to be somebody like Pat, you have to be somebody with such a strong force of will and such a vision for what you want to see for kids to, to persevere through that. And, and the thing that she talks about in terms of how she made change in that school, the thing that she talks about the most um, in that episode, but just in general, and the you know all of the many conversations I've had with her, the thing she talks about the most is the collaboration with organizations, uh, other organizations in the neighborhood, is reaching out beyond the school walls and creating partnerships with community-based organizations, talking to foundations, like really hustling to make sure that these kids get the benefit of the resources that are in this community, a community that is depicted often as just being under-resourced, but that does have have many resources in it. Uh, people who want to support the school and support these kids and make sure that they, that they learn. Um, and that's, that's so important. And, and her not being from Southeast Queens, actually, she's uh, she's originally from Brooklyn, but, but realizing it was an incumbent upon her to, to embed in that community and get to know people and make sure all these, these, these institutions were, were connected to each other. Yeah, community partnerships are integral to school success. Uh, my experience on the south side of Chicago, I was at Brooks College Prep. That's between uh, Roseman and Pullman neighborhoods uh, near what they call the wild 100s. You know, you could hear gunfire during the school day, right, type of thing. And uh, the, the school partnerships that we were able to form transformed the school experience for our students and was really a, a huge factor for their success. Uh, it was just a great great opportunity to really amplify uh, how amazing they already were. So thank you for um, bringing that up, Max. And Mark, I'd love to, I'd love to talk about Tiffany Hicks as well. I think, I think it was her who hosted a, uh, a visit for colleagues. And this is a common practice, you know, um, school principals will visit other schools and that's kind of to see like best practices or to help each other navigate what what is called a, a problem of practice uh, but when Principal Hicks' colleagues came to her school, they, they said something to the effect of, your kids are so articulate. And she replied, what, do you, what did you think you were going to see, right? I, I think that's how it went. What, what's going on in that story? <laughs> well, I, I think that if you're a Black person, particularly if you've been formally educated, chances are you have heard that term, you have heard someone say that to you in your life at some point in time. I've been hearing that phrase all my life. Um, And what it speaks to is just the perceptions that people have about Black people. It, it, It starts with the assumption that Black people are not as smart, they don't talk as well, they have a, a troubled background, they're, they're, they're not as good students. And we, we live with that. And it's not, just, it's not just non-Black people who believe that. Black people have internalized all that as well. And so when a situation like that 
where you come in contact with these bright, shiny, young black children and they are just, you know, acting like well, well-functioning or high-functioning human beings, then it just, it really goes against the instincts and assumptions that you've, you've grown up with. And people, you know, they react to that and say, and say things like that without the, without the consciousness, without the self-awareness of what they're, what they are betraying in that moment. The fact that they, they came in with those kinds of assumptions and that what they're seeing is going against those assumptions. So that, that's what I think she's speaking to. But I, I will say again, I don't know many formally educated black folks who have not heard a phrase like that at some point in their, in their life, whether it's directed at them or other black people around them. I've witnessed it firsthand myself. One, just being uh, in education, right? And in, in the schools I've always served in, uh, served students of color. But secondly, my wife is from uh, Zimbabwe and uh, being a former colony of, of England at part of their history she says she speaks the queen's english right and she's she's black and so she'll open her mouth and talk like she just normally talks and i watch white people's brains implode on them <laughs> you know what i mean because they're like wait, wait, right, exactly. what's coming out of your mouth is not matching right, my world right. for you so I, I hear what you're saying and i think exactly. tiffany had this deep pain though uh it sounded like in her voice like knowing that and knowing how bright and talented and wonderful her kids were and the mismatch between her seeing that and recognizing it and the kids demonstrating it on a daily basis. And yet the sort of uh, performance on standardized tests and, and, and this kind of thing as, as well. Yeah. And I would say that, I don't know, it's hard to have a really deep enough appreciation for the impact that that kind of those kinds of assumptions and beliefs mm. have mm. on people. Right. We we think of it as just sort of a one off kind of thing. But this is what many people, black people sort of this is the water that we swim in. Uh, these are the conditions that we face every single day. And when you when you walk out of your house or when you turn on the TV or when you talk to someone, all of those assumptions are, are at play in that moment. And they define you in ways that are profound and imperceptible. And, um, you know, when we talk about racism and internalized racism, I think people have a hard time wrapping their arms around it because you can't see it. It, 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 it. You don't, if you're not, Black, if you're not targeted by that kind of racism, you can't, you don't really experience it. And yet it's just so insidious in the way that it, don't, it not only defines our lives, but, but it defines the other, the ways in which people think of us and treat us. And it, it, it informs the institutions, uh, the expectations of those institutions, everything um, is affected by that kind of attitude. And, and belief system. 
Well, Max and Mark, I'd love to uh, keep the conversation going, but right now is a great time to get some messages in from our show sponsors. And when we get back, Mark, I'd love to talk to you about a playground experience that you had. Develop your structures, systems, supports, and culture for excellent teaching and learning in every classroom for every student as part of Leading Learning, a brand new certificate in school management and leadership course from Harvard. Topics include aligning systems with instructional vision, creating structures for your students' academic and character development, developing your teachers, navigating change, and more. Leading Learning runs from July 20th to August 17th, 2022. Apply by July 8th, enroll by July 14th, and get started at betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Harvard. Are you automatically tracking online student participation data during COVID? Innovative school leaders across the country have started tracking online student participation using TeachFX because it's one of the most powerful ways to improve student outcomes during COVID, especially for English learners and students of color. Learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer at teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. That's teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. Today's show is brought to you by Organized Binder. Organized Binder develops the skills and habits all students need for success. During these uncertain times of distance learning and hybrid education settings, Organized Binder equips educators with a resource to provide stable and consistent learning routines so that all students have an opportunity to succeed, whether at home or in the classroom. Learn more at OrganizedBinder.com. All right, and we're back with Max Friedman and Mark Winston Griffith, who co-create the podcast School Colors on NPR's Code Switch. And I highly recommend that the ruckus maker listening go over there and subscribe to that podcast. It is well worth every second that you listen. All right, well, Mark, I mentioned before the break that I'd love to talk about this playground experience. It might have been at Tiffany's school, but you know what I want you to talk about is when you left this playground, I think they might have called it like an outdoor learning space too. So that was interesting, like how they framed it. But you talk about these emotions, these feelings that you have after seeing what was happening there. So can you take us to that moment and, and tell us what you were feeling? Sure. Um, and, and Max was there too. It's just my right. voice you heard on it. But um, I think I reacted to it as not only a journalist but as a black man who went to elementary school and junior high school in New York, in Queens in particular. And the experience I had was, you know, she she took us, the principal took us on a tour of the school and we went outside and, you know, this, I'm just revealing my own sort of generational (laughs) limitations. But, you know, when I grew up, the playgrounds were just there to, for you to sort of just get your energy out um, to, uh, to, to play, to have fun. They really were not designed to stimulate or facilitate learning. And that's what was happening in this space. And so I was, I was impressed with it. And look, it may not be different from other, from a lot of other school spaces, but there was something about it that was intentional that had a respect 
uh, for the, the kids who are going to be participating in that space and for what they could and what they could gain from it. And so it wasn't just the space, but the way in which I saw those kids interacting with it. You know, we spend so much time in school colors thinking about the problems and looking at what's going wrong and the barriers. And, you know, to be quite frank, we don't spend enough time with kids and the, the very subject of the, of the things that we're talking about. And so in, in spending just that little time with those kids, it just brought home to me what this was all about in the first place. And that these are not just subjects or like, you know, broken people. These are vibrant human beings. <laughs> and it was just so exciting to see them in their element with joy and energy and vibrancy. And so when we walked away from it, it again, not only reminded me of what we were there for, but it gave me something that I don't always have, which is some level of, of hope and excitement. And also just an acknowledgement that there are some really exciting things going on in black schools that we just don't, we don't showcase enough. We don't highlight enough. We're not aware of. And so it, it was a reminder for me that this was indeed going on and I was just excited to be a part of it. Thanks. For, thanks for sharing that, Mark. And Max, let's highlight one of those bright spots. Uh, you know, I think uh, Elias, uh, he, he reminds me of every student, you know, that I've taught and specifically most recently in, at Brooks, just amazing kids. Khalif, shout out to Khalif if you're listening. He did uh, the artwork behind me on my wall. Uh, about ruckus making, and that's one of my favorite paintings ever. But there's there's this kid, Elias, and he has an interesting story, and he travels quite far to go to school. And I'm curious, you know, if there's anything, Max, that you'd like to share from his story that you think would be important for the ruckus making ruckus maker listening to hear. Well, what you actually didn't hear on the podcast is that I went with Elias and his mother, Shermaine, on their commute a few weeks ago. Okay. Um, so I met, I met them at their house at uh, about 7 o'clock in the morning in South Jamaica. We got on a bus, public bus. I got off the bus. We walked about 10 minutes. We got onto another bus. And uh, actually, the second bus, so uh, Shermaine, his mother, um, at the time that I first met her, she was working at a Costco in New Jersey. So she would take two buses with him to school for between an hour, an hour and a half, and then take another bus for two hours to a different state to go to work and then work for four hours and then come back to ride the bus with him again. Elias is in sixth grade. So, and on all of that is so that he can go to a school in Forest Hills, uh, not in, not in their neighborhood in South Jamaica. And so, um, I took the bus with, with Elias a few weeks ago and, um, yeah, he's just a he's just a delightful he's a <laughs> delightful kid. I mean, he's learning a lot and he's learning a lot at that school that he goes to. So we talked about, you know, it's like there it's a it's an expeditionary learning school, so it's an outward bound school, so they've been doing a unit on on I've been doing a unit on on urban planning, so it was really like up my alley. <laughs> so we would, you know, I was like, "What have you been learning lately?" He was talking to me about Robert Moses and how he built the parkways out to Long Island in such a way that the buses couldn't get under the under the overpasses. Like, I was like, "Yeah, I didn't learn that till I was in my twenties." Wow. Um, and I read the Power Broker, and this kid is twelve. So, um, mm. you know, uh, but 
in between the first time I, I met him and the second time he started getting into skateboarding. So by the time we met up to get on the bus, he like had all these cool rings on his fingers and had a skateboard with him. And he wanted to get to school like early enough so that he could practice skateboarding a little bit in front of the school before school actually starts. But yeah, I mean, he, the thing is, is that he, you know, I asked him, you hear me ask him in episode six, like, why does he think he has to travel so far right. again, between an hour and an hour and a half to, to get, the kind of education that he's getting, which he, which he really loves a place where he feels really valued. And, you know, you could hear him. I think you can hear him really wrestling with the, um, what does he say? He says sort of, I don't want to get it wrong, but he says more or less like, you know, maybe it's a thing about race. Mm -hmm. You don't really want to think that, but you know, the truth is uh, sometimes a little hard to bear. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I think, I think for people who, it's just, you know, kids, kids are paying attention, right? Yeah. They don't, even if they don't have all the context, like even if they don't, you know, you may, you may say you have perfectly good reasons for whatever action you're taking to preserve the status quo, but like kids are paying attention and they hear what they hear and they see what they see. And I think that's important to keep in mind. I'm not trying to tell, I mean, I just like, I didn't tell him that it was about that the reason that he, that his school, that the school in his neighborhood doesn't have the resources that they, that they should have um, is about racism. But, you know, you live in an all black neighborhood like South Jamaica or a predominantly black neighborhood, I should say. And it's, and, and if you've been to any other part of the city, it's hard not to notice, you know, you see um, another thing he was learning about in school in that unit was like the different kinds of, you know, there's more tree cover in places like Forest Hills than there is in South Jamaica. Other just little things about how the neighborhood looks that just communicate to you every day the way in which um, black neighborhoods and black people are not valued as much by our politics and our society. And so I, that's why it was, it was really, I mean, like Mark said, ultimately this is all about kids. We don't include that many kids on the show. It's, there's always, you know, we wish we, we wish we could have more, um, but that's why we wanted to include his voice. I appreciate you did, you know, that you did. And, and uh, just just hearing what he was excited about, you know, I think he wanted to become an astronaut. Uh, I think that's mm -hmm, what he says. Mm -hmm. But the words that, you, you know, he used, like why he loved his school, I think he talked about just feeling seen. Uh, he said, mm -hmm, people want to mm -hmm. be around me, I believe he said. Mm -hmm, just this mm -hmm. connection. And I couldn't mm -hmm. help but consider, like, well, how can, why can't schools create that for all kids, Right. Like mm -hmm. what's getting in the way. So his his story is for sure powerful. It also reminds me too, because I think you both um, talk about this uh, zone preference system in, in New York. And in, in Chicago, they have uh, these selective enrollment schools. Brooks was a part of that. Uh, in kids, kids would test early, early ages, right? Elementary school. And I think the similarities that I saw was that the parents on the north side of Chicago were very aware of the process and how that all worked. They got their kids tutors for the test, you know, test they came and they knew how to rank schools and that kind of deal. And the, the parents on the, the West and South side who were parents of color were less informed from the schools. And it didn't, what's interesting, like my lived experience, I actually created a uh, um, opportunity for parents to learn more about the selective enrollment process because they were so poorly informed and received a season desist letter to shut shut it down, which was really Whoa. kind of scary and also very enlightening to me. But I, 
you know, it goes to an idea that I think comes out through the School of Colors podcast, this idea of like cooperation versus competition. And it always just made me so mad that uh, one, the selective enrollment schools wouldn't collaborate and cooperate in terms of how can we best serve all students and really make this process equitable so that the, these, these students could get into the best school, so to speak, that was available to them. Because what happened is that kids would do well on these tests, then they would rank the schools just totally wrong. And as a result, they wouldn't get into, quote unquote, one of the best schools. They'd be locked out, you know, forever and would have to reapply the following year and that kind of thing. And that always just drove me uh, crazy. But Max, I don't know if there's anything you want to add here at the end, you know, regarding zone preference and uh, what you learned about that and how it impacts families? Well, zone preference is such a tricky thing because it, it, it really ties into the whole idea of a neighborhood school, mm-hmm. right? Which is an idea that is really, really, really valorized in, in this country of a neighborhood school, maybe in other countries too. I don't know that much about education in other countries, but the idea that you, if you live someplace, you have the right because of the school zone to go to the school in your neighborhood. If it's in New York, you can even walk there sometimes. Um, and people will fight really hard to, to, to hold on to that, that, that zone preference, that neighborhood school um, idea. Well, Mark, you know, I'd love to ask you one of the last questions that uh, that all the guests on the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast answer. And so for, I, I love this one and I never know what's going to come out of it, but can you imagine for me that you could put a message on all school marquees around the world for a single day? Mark, what would your message read? You know, we, we're, we oftentimes like to say, Love thy neighbor. And I'm thinking of just believe in your neighbor uh, in the sense that what you have in District 28 is not just sort of mistrust, but a sense that particularly from one and from one direction to the other, this, this sense that people on the South side are just sort of naturally underperformers that they don't, that their families don't believe in education as much um, that they're not, that they're, they're just not capable uh, uh, as of as much and that the schools themselves are not even worth attending. Like the idea for someone on the North side of the district, that they would go to a school on the South side was just inconceivable to them. You know, forget about the fact that they would be attending school with black kids and people from the South, but just the institutions itself, the idea that like we are not capable of of establishing learning institutions that are worth it, I think is a huge problem in the city. And what makes a lot of people believe that they have to, that there's something that they have to escape. That to be in a high-performing school means you're in a school with as as few black people as, as possible. And so there, you know, I, it's obviously much more complicated than this. But if you're going to put it on a marquee, obviously reducing it to some very basic ideas. But it's basically it's about believing in the worth and abilities and humanity 
of your neighbor, which I think at this point does not really happen in most segregated places in, in the United States. Thanks, Mark. And, and Max, I think the last question I'll ask, maybe instead of the dream school, uh, I'll ask you this instead. So the ruckus maker listening is going to go over and check out School Colors podcast for sure. And after listening, what is one hope that you you have for them? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I hope that, you know, to go back to what storytelling can do, um, I think what storytelling frequently does for me is that I, I see myself, I see myself in, in, in media. And I don't mean like I feel sort of represented in an identity sense, although of course as a white man, there are lots of white men represented in media. It, it's more like I see myself or I see things that I see things that I'd like to be or things that I, I want to be or things that I, I know things that I do that I don't want to do. I you know, those moments really stick with me. And I, I, I think I hope that people have that kind of experience with our show where they, you know, both in the stories that we tell from the present and the stories that we tell from the past, maybe they hear, maybe they hear themselves um, in good ways and maybe they hear themselves in not so good ways. And they'll reflect on, on, on you know, the, the choices that they make and the way that those choices uh, tie into the history and, and also the future. Because a lot of, you know, the, a lot of parents and educators all together um, being really loud can can take actions that have consequences for decades, as, as I think we demonstrate on the show. So yeah, I hope that people hear themselves for better or worse. And, and, and I really, really, I mean, you know, this whole season was prompted by a, an attempt to go through a diversity planning process in this district, which is, which is extremely diverse, but also deeply segregated. Um, that process never took place because of the pandemic chiefly, but, but there was a lot of resistance to the idea of going through a diversity planning process in the district. and. You know, we are doing uh, with this podcast, we're doing our little part to make up for the process that never happened, which was if you take the people who are going to lead the process at face value, which was supposed to bring people together to at the very least just talk about some of this stuff. Um, that we're talking about on this on, on this episode right now. Um, talk about the inequity in the district. Talk about why things are the way they are and how they could be better and how they could be better for for all students in the district. And and this is a district in which, like I said, it's deeply segregated. And people on the north and south side of the district just don't, you know, among other things, just really don't know each other. Those relationships are not there. And so, again, coming back to this idea of the podcast as a kind of code, you know. People on the north side are never, probably never going to hear the voice of somebody on the south side, except maybe they heard it on the podcast and vice versa. People on the south side are maybe never going to hear the voice of somebody on the north side, if not for listening to this podcast. And maybe they're never going to know the the, the backstory, the immigration history of somebody uh, who lives in Richmond Hills from Guyana. Like, you know, these stories that mm-hmm. people don't share with each other because these spaces don't exist for people to come together. We are doing sort of like the next best thing, I, I, I hope. Um, then, you know, if, 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 you know, with the absence of a kind of in-person space where really people are really sit down and build trust and have deep conversations. Um, I, that's, that's, I, I guess I hope that maybe they, they, after the, after they get the next best thing, they do the best thing, which is to actually, <laughs> you know, actually get together and, and sit down with each other and have, as we talked about, as you and Mark were talking about real conversations. Well, Mark, Max, thank you so much for being my guest on the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast. It was my honor to host you today. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, Ruckus Maker. 
If you have a question or would like to connect, my email, daniel at betterleadersbetterschools.com or hit me up on Twitter at Alien Earbud. If the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is helping you grow as a school leader, then please help us serve more ruckus makers like you. You can subscribe, leave an honest rating and review, or share on social media with your biggest takeaway from the episode. Extra credit for tagging me on Twitter at Alien Earbud and using the hashtag BLBS. Level up your leadership at betterleadersbetterschools.com and talk to you next time. Until then, class dismissed. Mm-hmm.